welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. morning's message text is from Genesis chapter 7, verses 6 through 17. So the words of the Lord. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Please pray with me. We bow our knees before you, Father, our God, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Of course, the people of God say, Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, good morning, church. You know, we come upon Genesis 7, and it's been a bit of a, uh, uh, it's taken some time to get here in a a, uh, chronological sense. There's been a lot of, uh, folks rotating up here to the, the pulpit, and, and that's been wonderful. Uh, we've certainly been, uh, we've heard wonderful messages from the uh, messengers that God has sent to ascend to this pulpit, and it's a privilege to be here. 
you know, every Sunday school for every curriculum that we've heard has incorporated and used the story of Noah. And let's face it, what, what kid doesn't like a story about boats and animals? We certainly know that that's, that's the case. I mean, I enjoy the story of boats and animals. And we think about it particularly for our, our real young kids, but even as they progress and, 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 and grow through early elementary, um, very rarely often does the story of Noah and the ark, if you will, go beyond that animal motif. And unfortunately for the adults who hear it, we can get bogged down in all the, the scientific and, and data at the expense of the at the expense of the unimaginable destruction from which the animals who entered the ark were saved from. We think we need we, we think about that. And that's something that I think often we need a purpose to do. I can think that it's likely there are have been times when we are all complicit. Uh, when sharing the story of Noah, and we don't highlight the severity of this particular judgment. We don't we don't dwell upon it. We don't meditate upon it and think about think about the uh, the force of it and why why it was so nece- necessary and essential. And this knowledge of judgment may often be omitted as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it's good news. The gospel is good news. But I've, I've actually had people go, well, why is the news so good? Oh, well, well, I forgot to tell you something here. Right? And certainly as we've been, uh, as we started in Genesis 1, and we, we started before we even, before we even got into to verse 2, uh, in verse 1 of Genesis, we looked at the attributes of God and we considered who God is and his attributes because they're vital and they're important. And we thought, we, we worked our way through it and we see God's, God's love for his creation. We see God's grace towards his creation. But we also, we also come to understand at, at our core and in a very deep place within us that God is holy and that God is righteous. And God has an absolute, without any, any equivocation, without any variation, an abhorrence and intolerance to sin. Most of us aren't kids anymore, and the kids that do attend Christ's Covenant Church here, they hear the whole unvarnished truth from this pulpit. And they hear it each Lord's Day, and they hear it at their homes. And the Holy Spirit has His way, I believe, the Holy Spirit has His way as much on a child's heart as He does on an adult's heart. Why wouldn't He? And this story here has different players in it, but this story today out of chapter 7 of Genesis, as has been all the stories and all the narratives that we've encountered so far in Genesis and that we hear out of Colossians from Joe and Ephesians uh, from Tyler and Peter from Luke. It's all about God. This story is about God. The record depicted is one of catastrophic judgment by God. It is expedient 
It's powerful and it's demonstrative that this generation of sinners should experience the severity of God's judgment so that all others might be warned of the coming wrath of God. And make no mistake, God's wrath is coming. The development of the narrative follows a, a couple sides here, two sides, if you will. One side depicts those who were commanded by God to enter the ark, and they were shut in by the Lord. Hence the title of the message, God's shut-ins. All those shut in, shut out, excuse me, from the ark died. And Noah then sailed through the judgment to a new age. The catastrophe does not interrupt or hinder God's desire to bless the world. And we can see that. We can see it in the Bible, replete in the Bible. This holiness and righteousness of God and what it commands and what it demands. And we see how far short we as a, as a, as a race, as a creation, fall short. Over and over again, certainly the, the understanding of the doctrine of total depravity is so evident. It's evident in our own lives and our own hearts. But we can see the beauty of God and, and how the judgment of God can be summed up, for instance, in Romans 6, verse 23, where it says, for the wages of sin is death. But we can also see the beauty and the wonder of the grace of God is that the second part of that verse is completed. Talking about eternal life in Christ. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul encompasses the gospel in one fell swoop there in one verse. That's just one verse. And the Bible's full of these verses that demonstrate the holiness and righteousness of God, the fact that he is a judge and that he will judge, but the fact that he is also graceful and that he is merciful to the point where he took it upon himself. The narrative of the flood testifies to God's power and freedom over his creation. It shows him to be a God who judges sin in deadly anger. And the other thing is, as we think about his judgment, we also think about his grace. And let me remind all of us that God's grace is a sacred thing. Any such judgment that we see here, for instance, in Genesis chapter 7, any such judgment that we see protects every preceding word of grace from any kind of profane innocuousness. Doesn't being privy to this, to understanding this, to seeing God's anger towards sin and the fact that we have been gracefully sealed in Christ, doesn't that, doesn't that give us an understanding and a gratitude that we have been enjoined with God and separated and sealed in Christ? This story protects us from being, becoming cavalier, become, becoming entitled, or it should. We should all be thinking about this. We should be thinking about, about God's judgment, again, born out of his holiness and righteousness, that he will not violate any of his attributes, and that God's gracious redemption is meaningful in light of judgment. 
the narrative here in chapter 7 is more interested in the moral aspects of the flood than all the, the physical details, and they're there. We can, we can study those, and we do study them, because they do come up in conversation. They come up in conversation when we talk about young earth, old earth, and all these things that, that some people say, well, the flood was a local thing or that it was just, a, just a, uh, restricted to, to Europe and the Middle East or whatever. We study those things, and we, and we know the Bible said it's a universal flood, that it covered the mountains and covered, covered the, mountain, the tallest mountains on the planet by cubits. But when we look at this, we look at it from a moral perspective. Remember that the cause is stressed, is stressed here. Again, habitual, monstrous acts of sin and corruption and violence on a worldwide scale. So the questions, the, the chapter answers questions for us that I strongly, strongly suspect we've been asking, and we've been asking of late, not just in the context of Genesis 7 or Genesis 1 through 6 leading up to 7, but as we look around this world and at the landscape, as we look at the people who are in authority and the people who shake their puny little fists at God, we look at a church that has often remained silent. What is the end of humanity? Can men and women pursue their lives amorally and immorally? and enjoy pleasures of the world with reckless abandon without consequence. Is this life final, or is it preparatory? Depending on who you ask is, is going to be a function of what answer you get. But we know what the Word of God says. The answer is clear in this narrative. Everything that had life, everything that had breath, died. The day of the eruption and the commencement of the rain is marked by a specific date, of course, the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. And the Bible is so, uh, is, is great at giving us these specifics that remind us that this is not some mythological Aesop's fairy tale, that the, the, this is a real thing, that the, these, these happen, they're historical. They're, they're documented in the highest document. In fact, a book that has survived and, and, it ha and it has more authenticity than any other book written on the face of the planet. That's not hard to prove that that is the case. The Bible, the Bible is accurate and factual, that it's inerrant, it's infallible, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We don't, we don't have to contort, do uh, uh, verbal contortions and do all that to demonstrate that. It's not hard to do. So we see this, this accurate depiction of what day it happened. And verse 11 and verse 13 of this chapter say mentioned on that day twice, which underscores the magnitude of what been foretold was indeed happening. That the waters were coming and the waters came. What was that day and the preceding days like for the people of Noah's generation? Well, it was like any new morning. There was no alarm and no thought for their doom. Let's let, let's let Jesus answer it. In Matthew 24, 36 and 39, he says, But concerning that day and the hour, 
No one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, talking about his return, his return to come and judge Jerusalem, and judge, judge Israel. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marry, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of Jesus at the end of the, at the, end of the age. And in Peter's day, certainly the detractors Peter addressed had not yet learned the lessons of, of Noah's waters. In 2 Peter 3, 5-7 it says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means of these, the world that had existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Of course, today, many regard it as nothing more than a kid's fairy tale, despite the physical and scientific evidence of the flood, despite the physical and scientific evidence to the contrary. So Noah spent 120 years building this, this thing that nobody had ever seen before, this monstrosity, this, this edifice, without any, any real uh, understanding of what the function of it was going to be. So I'm incorporating a bit of speculation here in, in what the thought process might be for those who were, who were looking and observing this. And we can only imagine, the Bible's a bit silent on it, of the public ridicule that Noah endured as he built this thing. And there may have been even active, overt opposition to him, similar to what we saw in the time of Nehemiah. We're not sure on that point. We're not told that God spoke anything to Noah during these long years, though, though he may very well have. We don't know. But now the work is finished and God does speak. God speaks to Noah again. And if we look at again chapter 7 verses 1 through 4, I did not read those at the beginning. But let me read them now. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. The male and his maid and a pair of the animals that are not clean. The male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Blotting out is, is a difficult thing to consider. And in verse 5, if we continue on, and, and as we go through Genesis chapter 7, we see that Noah obeyed God. Noah was an obedient man, and he obeyed the Lord God. So I want to, let's think about three lessons here, and I'll delve into them uh, briefly from this portion of Scripture. First one is, the Lord himself shut Noah and his family into the ark. God did it. And I know as 
mature Bible-believing Christians, it doesn't, we don't have to really exert ourselves and exert our understanding of the Word of God in its entirety, the full counsel of God's Word, as we think about that statement. The Lord himself shut Noah and his family into the ark. The Lord himself did it. They were totally secure, and therefore they become an illustration for us on the believer's perfect security in Jesus Christ. The deluge would come and engulf the entire creation, but those chosen, sanctified, and sealed in by God would not be harmed. God did not tell Noah to gather his sons and close what might have been, must have been a really massive door to accommodate the entrance into the ark of, of all these creatures. The Lord does not place the safety of his people in others' hands. We should take comfort in that. We should have absolute solace in that. He himself throws the lock. In Revelation 3, verse 7, says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. The shutting in of Noah is the equivalent of our being sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul shared with us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you, if you were in Christ, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. God commanded Noah to enter the ark, and God sealed him in. So also today or excuse me, there is a, the second lesson here, again very briefly that I would look at, is that there is a lesson here of God's great grace. The Lord shut him in, and we may presume this was the door shut before the rains came, perhaps right before the rains came. So the ark was completed, and the animals began to gather and the animals began to enter. It's reminiscent of God giving Adam dominion over creation and Adam naming the animals as they presented. So they all presented animals from over the entire earth. 120 years gives a giraffe plenty of, plenty of time to swim from Africa or whatever else needs to happen. But God made it happen, and they presented, they entered the ark. So here we have this open door go, open door here. The animals begin entering. The creatures begin to enter. And Noah had been preaching God's righteousness, man's sin, and the coming judgment for 120 years. Again, this, this small portion of a lesson is about the grace of God. And as Noah did this, God's grace carried him and those being witnessed to continued as, as he did this, as, as Noah preached this, the people who were in, within earshot of this and who witnessed this and looked and, and saw what was going on continued on in their debauched lifestyle, yet Noah was faithful to the end. 
Makes me think of, of uh, Genesis 15, 6 that, that Luke read this morning. That Noah was faithful and it was counted to him as righteousness. So just imagine this great ark sitting there with those who would carry on the life of creation sitting on board. The doors remaining open wide and inviting, yet no one else enters. If anyone had wanted, they could have entered. What grace. And again, there's, a, there's, there's, a, 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 there's another doctrinal point here that we can, we can look at. That's reinforced within us. This doctrine of election. Which so many people find so vile. So abhorrent. Even Christians struggle with. So also today, all who will may come. Many do not, but no one can claim that God has spurned anyone with a desire to come to him. That, to come to him. If you desire Christ, if you desire God, and you desire to come to him, you will not be turned away. God is clear. He's emphatic on that. Very clear on that. How many people, how many people see our sign out there, Christ Covenant Church? Worship services at 9.30 in the morning. How many people drive up and down Reynolds Road here? We become, we, we become for many people, even people in this neighborhood, we become a backdrop and a background. We don't even, we're not even worthy of a glance to go, oh, what are all those cars doing there? Don't they know the Seahawks are on in a half hour? What are they doing there? And that's, that's the state of many churches. And Aaron spoke about, spoke about this to some degree last week in, in, a, in a wonderful way. And we almost have these, these little arcs out there spotting the, the landscape. Yet people see the doors wide open. And it's, no, no, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm looking out an open door there and one over there. Certainly, certainly we want to have air moving through here, especially when you got a lot of air going on right now, right? But we want, the doors are open. And we would welcome anyone to come in. We would bid anyone to come in. We, everybody in this room has invited people to church. Come join us. Come see what it's about. Come see what we're about. You want to, you want to know why she handles her, her illness so well? Come and we'll, we'll, we'll show you. We'll tell you. We'll explain it to you. All the while praying and hoping that God will do something to their heart. The third lesson is there's, that God has a limit to the extension of his grace. If God's grace is rejected, that day of reckoning always arrives. It always comes. For one final week, I'm, I'm thinking, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this. For one final week, the doors stood open, but the doors closed and the rains came. Remember that the same God who opens doors is himself the door. In John chapter 10, in verses 7 and verse 9, Jesus said, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We see that he also closes the doors and refuses to open them when the time for grace is gone. I want to look, I want to read a short passage in Matthew 25 that we are familiar with. Let me share it with you all. Jesus is teaching a parable here. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom uh, was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. All of them did. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there, there will not be enough for us and for you, you go gather the, the, to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now there's a, there's a, there's a lesson in here that goes beyond what the point I wanted to make was the fact that the door will shut. The time is coming when the door will shut. And when that happens, it will be too late. But in the meantime, God is gracious. In the meantime, God has the door open for us. And I won't get into the other, other portions of the lesson here in the parable that Jesus is teaching. But like the bridegroom, God may delay his coming longer than people expect. And like the wise bridesmaids, his followers must be prepared for such a delay. Discipleship is often more difficult than the novice might expect. And like the foolish bridemaids, those who do not adequately prepare may discover a point beyond which there is no return. When the end comes, it will be too late to undo the damage of neglect. So the door is open. And that's important for all of us. Even though we've entered, even though if you have put your trust and faith and hope in Christ, that you have been, been redeemed, even though you have been brought in through the door that is Christ, even though you have been sanctified, set apart, and even though you have been sealed, the seal guaranteeing the ownership and guaranteeing the contents, even though that has happened, the door is still open for those who have not received that, who have not received that blessing from Christ and from God. So that's important for us. It's important for us to uh, continue to drive this, this deep gratitude that we have for our own salvation. And it also drives us to our knees to pray for those whom we love who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. No matter what your, what your flavor is as far as your eschatology and all of that, 
no matter whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist or whatever, we all, when it comes to salvation, praying for our loved ones and those around us, we all pray like a Calvinist. All of us. We are still in the day of grace. The Lord has not shut the door yet. Remember that the Lord said to Noah, bid him come into the ark. And likewise, remember the words of the prophet Isaiah many, many generations after Noah. In, in Isaiah 55, verse 1, it says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, those beautiful, wonderful words that most of us know by heart, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are burdened and laden. And then the beautiful verse in Revelation 22 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Let them come. Come to Christ. So as we look at this, this portion, and it's been just a very brief portion in chapter 7 of Genesis, what can we draw from these? We can see the holiness, certainly, and righteousness of God, that he is, he is uh, sovereign over every single thing, that he is righteous to execute his judgment and his wrath, and he's also righteous and just to forgive those and render mercy to those whom he will. I would invite you to go and spend some time as you have before, but do it again maybe in Romans chapter 9, for instance. He is a God of integrity, and he does what he says he will do. He's a God who has no tolerance for sin. But he's a God that has mercy in a manner, in a depth, in a way that we could never, never muster as finite creatures. We can look back to Genesis when we see the many verses in the New Testament. I was thinking about this, that talk about the coming final judgment and how God graciously preserves his people and exacts the due penalty of sin against those non-believers. And just looking, for instance, at one book, looking at a few verses in Second Peter. In, in chapter 2, verse 9 of Second Peter, it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. These are serious words. They're serious words and they're, they're comforting words. They're attention-getting words. Peter also admonishes us not to allow God's delay in bringing about this, this end judgment to cause us to join the ranks of the scoffers. In chapter 3, verse 9 of Second Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What a grace, gracious God we have. And just as 
The destruction of the flood initiated a new beginning for those spared. So Peter indicates that the final judgment will do the same. Chapter 3 again, verse 13, it says, Peter says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteous dwell. But the bottom line for Peter goes beyond hope for the future, for it impacts the way we live our lives today. Again, in chapter 3, in an earlier verse, 11, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So again, I've made, I've made already some allusion to it that there are strong, as we look at what we can draw from these few verses in Genesis, there are strong doctrinal teachings here. We are Reformed. We are Calvinists. We understand the acrostic, T-U-L-I-P. And certainly up through chapter 7 of Genesis, we can see we, we, we've studied and we've looked at, you've heard me preach and share messages on the total depravity of man. We've, we've seen and understand in this portion in and of itself the unconditional election of God. Noah didn't merit this favor. God was merciful to Noah and his family. But God is also faithful and he had a plan to continue on this lineage because he told us in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And he has, he has continued to fulfill that. And he fulfilled it in Christ. And of course, the P in Tulip talks about preservation and perseverance of the saints. And God shut Noah in, just like he shuts us in. He shuts us in to his kingdom, to his house to his church, to be a part of his body. The Lord is infinitely serious about sin. Sin requires judgment and everyone will be judged. Everyone. There, there is a price to be paid for every transgression against the holy God. We can look at the severity or a sense of the severity that God has towards sin. Matthew chapter 7, three verses out of there. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are words that we do not want to ever hear from our Lord and Savior. And now I can't think of anything that would be more terrifying, honestly. The Lord is gracious to his people. Again, in the same chapter, but earlier, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus said this, this is, this is just so wonderful. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What a magnanimous and gracious God we have. 
The good news is that the penalty for our sin has been exacted against the impeccable and sinless Lamb of God. God himself came, was incarnate, came into our world, experienced life on this planet as a human, fully human, yet remaining fully God. Fulfilling the law in its entirety, not one blemish. That's what the word impeccable means. Christ is the only impeccable one. He is our sacrifice. He is the one who came to give his life for those who would put their trust and faith in him. It's he that God looked at and God saw a perfect man who satisfied every every dot and tittle of his law. No blemish. No perversity, no profanity, no corruption. The one we waited for, the one mankind waited for since Genesis 3. I just think that's Amazing. And we ask, well, how did the Old Testament saints get saved? They trusted in the coming Messiah, right? They knew God had given a, rendered a promise, and God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful. We pray the promises of God in our life, and he is faithful. We confess our sin as part of our service in the mornings. It's so vital and so important that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Isn't that that's amazing as we sit here joined as a body. It's amazing as we sit joined together, husband and wife and children on our knees, confessing our sins and praying to this God who hears us, this God who has issued promises to us. And we embrace those promises, and we trust him knowing that he will fulfill those promises. And yet the cars go by, the people in our lives go by, the doors are wide open, God has not made us privy to those whom he has called and elected before the foundations of the earth. We are not hyper-Calvinists. We don't, we don't sit, sit around knowing that, well, if they're elect, God will, will make it happen. God requires of us. Like Spurgeon said, if someone's going to go to hell, let him have to climb over my dead body to do it. One of the reasons we're here. One of the reasons we're here, we're here on this Lord's Day to be equipped to go out and, and, and do that, to seize it. And I think about this and I can only imagine, <clears throat> will I be aware of the opportunities that I did not seize to share the gospel with those who are lost, those who are around me. 
And that's a, that's a difficult thing. Especially as we, as we come near to God and as we come near to this holy God. As you come near to hold this holy God, we see, we get a stronger sense and even a deeper sense of the corruption of sin in our life. It's impossible that that doesn't happen. I remember talking, we, I was sitting with a group of men at the rescue mission, guys who were in my program. And... We were just shooting the breeze. It was a Friday afternoon, and, and, and all the training for the week had, had wound down, and we were just talking. And we were talking about evangelism and things and the heart of it. And I remember asking, I asked the group, I said, listen, let me ask you something, gentlemen. I said, if you, you're, you're in Christ, you're a Christian. I said, if there was a hallway, and there was a door at the end of the hallway... I don't know why this came into my mind at the time. And I said, there was a guy sitting outside. You walk down and you ask the guy, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm guarding the door. Well, who's in there? What's going? What's in there? He goes, it's not what, it's who? Adolf Hitler's in there. But the guard says to you, he says, hey, listen, do you want to go talk to him? I'll let you go in there. Would you? Would you would you have that man open the door and allow you access to Hitler? To share the good news of Jesus Christ with him? I did, I just posed the question. It's it's you see my point. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's huge, and it's, it could be very difficult. But let me tell you something. When you sit down and when you think about it, we, were sent, we are sinners. Great sinners. The Apostle Paul said he was the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? We are great sinners, great sinners. And we may not have murdered and tortured millions of people, but our sin is vile to God. Our sin is abhorrent to that almighty and mighty God. Yet Christ, in that while we were yet sinners, died for us. He died for us. And he saved us. That understanding that what pleased God to, to watch his son be crushed on our behalf satisfied God's requirement when we put our trust and faith and hope in Jesus. When we do that, we are seen as righteous just like Abraham was, just like Moses, fill in the blank, just like our grandfather, our grandma our wife, son, daughter, whoever, who have put their trust and faith and hope in Jesus. Looking around, I don't know. But I see fruit that's born every day in this place from the folks in this, in this who are in here today. And I can only understand that you are Christians. But if you're not, 
The door is open. The door is open. And I would bid you to come to the door. The last thing I want to share with you this morning from this message is from Proverbs 18, just one verse, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The, run, the righteous man runs into it and is safe. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.